Hello, microbe friends. I'm Justine Dees, and welcome to the Joyful Microbe Podcast. It's the show all about the microbes we encounter in our daily lives. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't wait to share this show with you. We talk about microbes on this podcast, but let's face it, if you don't see a picture of them, it's difficult to imagine what's going on in the microbial world. That's why microscopy is so helpful. It allows us to actually see the invisible communities of bacteria, fungi, algae, viruses, archaea, and protozoa. But sometimes art does a better job of representing the microbial world and all of its intricacies and nuances. So that's what my guest on the podcast, Dr. Lisa Vanderart, does. They create microbiology art as a professional science artist and illustrator, helping others express difficult concepts that need descriptive visuals. Another thing I love that Lisa does is create microbiology art that anyone can purchase from their online shops. Things like enamel pens of bacteria that we talk about in this episode, tote bags, stickers, and coffee mugs. These different products they sell allow us to outwardly express our love, passion, and enthusiasm for microbes. If you've ever wanted to meet a science artist, here's your chance. We discuss Lisa's background as a PhD microbiologist and how they decided to combine their passion for microbiology with art to create a career. Lisa works with different clients on science illustration projects, and I've actually had the pleasure of working with them on a project of my own. So we discuss the process of working together to turn my idea of what I thought would be the best Winogradsky column color guide into a real thing. It ended up looking amazing and is truly a beautiful representation of the color patterns you might see in your column. So you got to see it. In this episode, you will learn about how bioluminescent bacteria drew Lisa to microbiology, what makes the soil bacteria Streptomyces so delightful, an example of the difficulties that scientists have in categorizing bacteria, how Lisa decided to actually start a science illustration business, and what they think about when they create art that helps us visualize complex microbiology concepts, and this really cool tote bag that Lisa designed that helps us see how many bacterial cells can fit in a tote bag. And then we talk about our collaboration on the Joyful Winogradsky column guide and wrap it up talking about microbes in our daily lives and how Lisa loves the outliers in the microbial world. And then Lisa shares a cool microbiology activity of a way to create microbial shapes so that you can conceptualize how weird it is that microbes actually come in these different shapes and sizes and that something without a brain can make that shape. As a side note, 
This interview was recorded back in March. So we talk like Lisa is still a postdoc working on wrapping things up. But Lisa has actually gone completely full time now as a science artist. So you can keep that in mind while we're chatting. Before we get into the interview with Lisa, I wanted to tell you about something I think will help you enjoy the microbial world more at home or in the classroom with a fun hands-on microbiology project. It's called the Joyful Winogradsky Column Guide and Lisa played a huge role in helping me make this so valuable. With this guide, you can teach your students or learn for yourself how to make a window into the microbial world with an ecosystem in a jar that develops into layers of colorful microbes. And every jar is uniquely yours. It's very simple to make a Winogradsky column, which is why it's such a great experiment for the classroom. But it's a different thing altogether once you have your beautifully developed column and you're wondering, what in the world are all these microbes? And if you're thinking of using this with your students, you're going to want a lesson plan. The Joyful Winogradsky Column Guide is intended to make your life easier, especially if you're an educator or a homeschooling parent, because it explains everything you need to know about creating a Winogradsky Column. The before, during, and after. So, you'll know not only how to make one, but also how to interpret your results. And teachers, you'll be happy to know you get an outline of a lesson plan and exercises for your students. And that part about interpreting your results, well, that's where Lisa came in. They designed an incredible color guide to help you make predictions of what microbes are growing in your column. You gotta see it. It has potential layers. You might see the colors of those layers and the types of microbes in there. So if the Joyful Winogradsky Calm Guide sounds like something you might be interested in, then head on over to joyfulmicrobe.com slash joyfulwinogradskycolumn, and there will be a link to it in the show notes for this episode. That's joyfulmicrobe.com slash joyfulwinogradskycolumn. All right, on to the interview with Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for coming on the Joyful Microbe podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for inviting me, Justine. I'm really happy to talk about science and art. Yeah, this is going to be really awesome. So you are a science illustrator and you're wrapping up your postdoc. So you've done a PhD and then you've continued your research as a postdoc and then you're going to be fully self-employed in June. So that's really exciting. Um, And I just love that you work on science, but also you're a science illustrator. And so it kind of brings together these two topics. And it's really, I think, having art that relates to microbes is really cool because microbes are kind of abstract. We can't see them. And so with your work, you can make microbiology real to people. And um, the things that we have trouble maybe wrapping our heads around, like bacteria and other microscopic organisms. And so that's really awesome. And then also you just kind of provide a way for people that love microbes to be more enthusiastic about them. So uh, this is awesome. Um, So 
just first, uh, let's just talk about who you are and what you do, both as a scientist and a science illustrator. Um, yeah, thank you for that introduction. That's really kind. So, yeah, I'm Lisa. I live in Newcastle upon Tyne right now in the United Kingdom, which is about 50 kilometers underneath Scotland. So if we only move 50 kilometers up, maybe we can avoid the whole Brexit thing. But that's another case altogether. Um, as you can hear from my name and probably my accent, I'm originally from the Netherlands, where I also did my PhD. And then I moved up to Newcastle to do my postdoc in the Center for Bacterial Cell Biology in, at the Newcastle University. So actually, I've always been like in love with arts. And a funny thing is actually before I went to university to study biology, I had such a difficult time deciding whether to like take the time to make a portfolio for art school or whether I should really go to university and study life, which also like intrigued me so much. Mm. Um, so I made the decision, whether it's a good or a bad decision, um, I decided to study life, study biology in the broadest sense, and I have not regretted it. I mean, biology mm. is awesome, which you like probably agree with. It's always mm. something that's surprising. And yeah, nature just always has a way of being beautiful and surprising in every single way. Mm. That's so true. So um, when did you actually start getting interested in biology and then microbiology specifically? Well, biology is a funny thing because I always like enjoyed nature, but I didn't really consider it a direction of study until I did one really cool experiment with my teacher in high school. Um, I read a like article in a magazine about a ecosystem in a jar sort of where you had mm. like a jar and you added seawater a seawater plant a um, tiny type of shrimp and we tried to add bioluminescent bacteria and the idea was that if you closed it it would all maintain each other the idea was so cool it died and stank horribly within a week but it was so oh, no. cool to make <laughs> and after that i realized i love the concept of like these ecosystems and I need to study this because this is insane. Yeah, I love that. And I think also that just kind of shows that you were ready to be a scientist because even though something quote unquote failed, you <laughs> were like, hey, this is amazing. <laughs> this is so cool. So <laughs> I love that. And that you guys tried to do bioluminescent bacteria. That's really neat too. Um, so what was... Um, how old were you whenever you did that? I think I was 17 at the time. Okay. And like, what was your understanding of bioluminescent bacteria at the time? Almost nothing. And in high school, at the time at least, um, we hardly learned about bacteria at all. So much is focused on human health. And then mm -hmm. if you're lucky, you get to look at plants and animals and a bit of ecosystem, like nitrogen cycle and water cycle but not really bacteria. So actually like the concept of bioluminescent bacteria blew my mind. It was so cool. So I got yeah. some from the market for that with the idea that if, yeah, if I'd scrape some from the fish and put it on a plate, it wasn't mm -hmm. bioluminescent at the time. It was just bacteria, but the possibility was there. That was mm -hmm. so exciting. So did they ever light up at all in your jar? They never did. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's still worth a try. You know, you got to try Thank stuff. You. I think it's awesome. You got to dream. Um, 
<laughs> so you studied Streptomyces bacteria for your PhD. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And I love Streptomyces, so just kind of share about what they do and kind of what you worked on. Everyone who works with Streptomyces absolutely loves them. I'm not sure if that's because Streptomyces are just so lovely or if we just all have some weird quirk about us. But like bacteria are generally very small, single-celled. Like if we imagine them, we always imagine like these tiny or a bit elongated cells. But Streptomyces, they are completely different. They're like fluffy, like a fungi you find in an orange. They're super fluffy and cute, and they come in all sorts of colors. And mm. I think that's why I'm, I like, I'm so excited about them. Because I remember seeing my first Streptomyces plates, and it was Streptomyces seedy color, making like an incredibly blue pigment. And I've never seen a bacteria become like completely blue naturally mm. before that. Yeah. I mean, I've done some genetics with um, like a blue test to see if your gene had inserted a plasmid, but this bacteria just made this bright blue antibiotic. So cool. So one of the cool things about Streptomyces is not just their shape and their color, but um, their complex life cycle can be seen in the things they can make. So with complex life cycle, I mean that they are like multicellular, they're fluffy, and they make spores, and they have a cycle in which they make a new spore and a new fluffy mycelium comes from that. And this normally all happens in the soil. So and maybe you've also told stories about Streptomyces making jasmine and making the scent that actually makes the soily scent. So when we walk around in the forest and we smell the scent that's so distinctly forest, it is um, jasmine, a compound produced by Streptomyces that we're smelling. Um, yeah, I love that. <laughs> We're so sensitive to that smell that if like molecules diluted to like a teaspoon in, in like 10 Olympic swimming pools, we still smell it, which is so wow. cool. But yeah, life in the soil is really rough because like it's first wet, then super dry. And there's all these other bacteria. And like you're a tiny little bacteria and you have no teeth, no claws. You're just sitting there and you're at some point, you finally have some food and you need to protect it. How do you do it? And what I find so striking about these bacteria is that they do chemical warfare. Streptomyces mm. make so many different types of antibiotic to protect their form of nutrients. And that's also the source of so many antibiotics we have in hospitals. Like two-thirds of our antibiotics we use in the clinic originally are from Streptomyces. Mm. And that links, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. That links to my PhD research. So my research was mostly on um, antibiotic production and resistance, because that's where something else that's cool comes in. Like if you make a chemical that's dangerous for bacteria, you need to be sure that it's not harmful to you. <laughs> you need mm -hmm. to be resistant. Generally, when streptomyces make an antibiotic, they make sure that they can handle it and that they also have genes which make them resistant to it. And that's hmm. something that's a problem in the clinic because antibiotic resistance is a massive problem. Um, so yeah, that's what I looked at. I looked at a bacteria that naturally was resistant to a um, clinical antibiotic, vancomycin. And when streptomyces color, they are resistant against this too. 
recognize vancomycin, they completely change uh, the cell wall, which is the target, to become resistant. And mm. that change is pretty radical. Um, so most of my time in that lab, I researched the streptomyces cell wall and how that changed in response to seeing these antibiotics. Oh, that's really interesting. It was so really cool. Is vancomycin um, produced by uh, bacteria or um, fungus? It's produced by a actinomycete as well. Um, okay. I the name eludes me now. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Yeah, I was just trying to get the um. It's a bacteria the idea well. in my head of the streptomyces making or being able to protect themselves. But uh, yeah, so it's from similar bacteria that they're protecting themselves from whenever they see vancomycin. But vancomycin yeah. is also something that we use. So that's very interesting. Um, Amyplatopsis is the type of bacteria that produces it. I did a quick Google there. I admit it's been too long since I worked with them. <laughs> okay, say it again. Uh, Amyclatopsis orientalis okay. is the producer of uh, vancomycin. There's a few okay. different species that create like similar compounds, but they are um, last resort compounds we use in the clinic right now, and they target mm. uh, the cell wall of gram-positive bacteria. Okay. Okay. That's very interesting. And so streptomyces are actually um, able to kind of restructure themselves so that they can protect from the vancomycin. That's really interesting. Yeah. So that means, I guess, that you see streptomyces and then the vancomycin-producing organism actually in the wild at the same time? Definitely. Um, that's, I think, also been shown as a very general mechanism where um, antibiotic resistances are spread. Um, all these bacteria, they cohabit in the soil or wherever they are in the water. And antibiotic resistance clusters or these antibiotic resistances are just as abundant as antibiotics are. So mm. for every antibiotic that we find, there's bound to be a resistance mechanism just around. So at some point we will encounter problems with that. I also wanted to <laughs> just highlight what you said earlier about streptomyces because it is true. Anybody who kind of learns about streptomyces and or they study them at some point they fall in love with them and i think it's because it touches on two of our senses where you have smell and also you get to see their beautiful colors i just think mm. there's something really charming about that <laughs> the colors um, are also really important um yeah yep so colors are strange things of course. Um, I mean, what is a color really? It's just a way to bend light. And so if we see a bacteria that's like blue or pink or really bright yellow, then we know that they make a chemical compound that's complicated enough to bend light in some sort of way. And that's often also an indication that they make other interesting compounds. Mm. And that's what we genuinely use as an indication for interesting antibiotic production. Now, why is it that they tend to have colors whenever they're actually important compounds? It's a side effect. Uh, usually it's ring-like structures that are good at bending light in some sort of way. Just good at, mm -hmm. I say that, but that's a side effect of the complexity of this type of compound. What other colors do they make besides blue? 
I um, described a new species, um, Streptomyces roseifakiens. We named it after its pretty color. It's bright pink. Oh, and wow. It was so cool. My coworker, she isolated um, the compound itself, and she had this long isolation column, which was just so incredibly bright pink, almost luminescent. It was so mm. much fun to look at. <laughs> Naming species is a disaster, by the way, because... Um, <laughs> La- names are supposed to be in Latin, but I don't speak Latin because it's a dead language and no one speaks mm. Latin. And then you're supposed to use proper Latin naming conventions in order to name your species. But it's kind of like a different study on its own. <laughs> yeah, naming them is, and then trying to pronounce them <laughs> after their names is tough. <laughs> That's a thing altogether, yeah. <laughs> um. Whenever I was working on my PhD, I um, worked in an undergrad research lab where I actually taught and helped the students isolate streptomyces from the soil. And so we went around and sampled. And um, one of the students isolated one that made a a pink pigment. And that was so neat. (laughs) I just loved that so much, seeing that color. It was just very surprising. Love that. It's um, one of my... Friends, um, Professor Herr Mike Goodfellow, he's worked with Streptomyces forever. And I love to visit his office because he always still has these tiny glass jars filled with um, freeze-dried Streptomyces samples. And they're all different colors and everything. Mm. That's so neat. So for your postdoc, you worked on something a little bit different. Um, so why don't you share a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's kind of like different, but at the same time, not that different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can explain why. <laughs> so for streptomyces, I um, worked on this antibiotic resistance, but related to that, I also described a new species and got to know taxonomy and how to put bacteria on the proper place in the phylogenetic tree. And related to my antibiotic resistance work, I looked at the cell well, because that was the thing that changed with the antibiotic. So taken together, I gained a lot of insight in the cell wall, which determines cell shape in bacteria, and where to place bacteria properly in the taxonomic tree. So my new boss, Jeff, asked me if I'd be interested in looking at a bacteria that had a really strange shape and a really strange place in the phylogenetic tree. And yeah, those were both things I know how to do and enjoy doing. So it's like, well, (laughs) let's move to the United Kingdom. So this new type of bacteria, these are thermoactinomyces, are mycelial, just like streptomyces. So they are also tiny, fluffy balls with really long branches, but they are not streptomyces. Despite being part of the streptomyces for 50 plus years when they described the species at first, because when they looked at the DNA for the first time, when that became possible, they realized these are not streptomyces. These are firmicutes. They're closely related to Bacillus subtilis, which are this tiny unicellular bacteria. So it's kind of like a dolphin. Like you look at all these fish-like creatures and you look at a dolphin and you think, well, this must be a fish. It looks like a fish. But then you look closer and you realize, no, this is a mammal. It's closer related to a horse than to a fish, which is super strange. And we find the same thing with these bacteria. They don't look like the species they're supposed to be. (laughs) So our question is, how? How do you do this? Because shapes bring all these challenges. Tiny bacteria have the challenge of um, having two copies of DNA 
bringing them to the sides and then dividing smack in the center. But a mycelial bacteria has the challenge of like getting the DNA everywhere in this mycelium. That's pretty complicated. And then dividing in a proper way, making spores in their case at the right time. And it's incredibly complex. And these creatures, they have no brain. They just have DNA, which is a, honestly a very poor handbook or IKEA manual for how to do life. It's, yeah, and now we're basically wondering, how are you like this? So are these, these are organisms that are in the soil along with streptomyces? Um, Thermoctinomyces got their name because they're mostly isolated from really hot haystacks next to the road. Like what farmers like leave next to the road, these haystacks become super hot when there's also like manure in there and everything. Okay. And mostly they like to grow at 50 to 60 degrees, but indeed along with plenty mm -hmm. of streptomyces and fungi. That's really interesting. And so they form mycelium? Yeah. So that's usually, in my mind, I kind of have that in the bucket of fungi. I haven't really thought about like bacteria forming mycelium. So can you kind of explain like what that's like? Or is, it, is it very different from a fungus forming mycelium? They look the same, but bacteria are so much smaller. Um, that's why streptomyces were also confused with fungi for the longest time. I think up until the 1930s, at least, it used to be thought that streptomyces were fungi. That's why they still have myces in the name. But um, the main difference is what the size. Bacteria are so much smaller and fungi already have um, different organelles. They have their DNA in an organelle in the cell core. And all sorts of things that animals also have. They're completely different organisms in that sense. So the branching network that they form, is it smaller too? The mycelial it's network? So tiny. <laughs> oh my god. It's very skinny. Um, is it visible um, with the naked eye? You can't see streptomyces branches with the naked eye, no. If only. Hmm. But you don't need a very good uh, a very big microscope to be able to look at it. So that's that's at least nice. And if you like really grow up big strain at least if you have that like in liquid you can hold that up to the light and you see these big balls going around oh wow that's really neat okay so at what point did you actually start creating art that was related to microbiology and did you start out with kind of biology in general or did you kind of go right into making art about microbiology I think your key question here is art related to microbiology. That's a good question. Um, so I've been making art like really long time and I always had it as a bit of an escape from science. Like science is difficult, it takes brain power and now I want to do something that's fun and I'm just mm -hmm. going to consider the exact tone of blue of that sky and relax. But um, of course, when you can do things like that, you apply it to your work sometimes. So after mm -hmm. my PhD, I made a tiny magazine for my friends and family with like a layman's description of what I've actually done during my PhD. And I made the illustrations for that, for example. And oh. then I think about a year ago, I started to make more microbiology art and also like putting that on Redbubble because people were just excited about that. And mm -hmm. in the pandemic, um, we weren't allowed to go to the lab. And yeah, that kind of got me going haywire on it and expanding. Oh, that's really neat. So is the, the little magazine that you made, is that available online anywhere? I had it on my old website, but it was also in Dutch. 
So while I would love to share it, it's it's so niche now because it's all in Dutch. <laughs> but, um, it would probably still be neat to share just the pictures at least. <laughs> I think that's really yeah, neat. It's cute. Yeah, I, I considered that. that for a while, whether I would make it Dutch or English, but I decided like the people I'm going to give it to are my friends and family at my defense. So I'm just going to be selfish here and make it just for my family and friends. And it was it was really nice because um, graduations in the Netherlands, or at least at my old university in Leiden, were more of an event really than a proper examination. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a big event and a lot of friends and family came by. And um, so there is an examination where they asked me questions about my thesis, which I had to answer. But um, while everyone also got a copy of my thesis, which is also normal in the Netherlands, you print like 150 copies of your thesis, which is tiny. It was only 150 pages mine. <laughs> I can't expect my friends and family to read my thesis. So that's kind of why I made the magazine. Like you have this book now, but what am I actually saying here? I love that. I think that's so neat that you went and you kind of took everything that you studied for years and then made that into a magazine to share with your family. I think that's really special. It was really fun, but also kind of disappointing. You look at it and like, wow, that was it. (laughs) (laughs) But that's good that you were able to boil it down to something simple. I think that's great. It was fun. Also, I wasn't able to do that immediately after like graduating. It took me like some time of actually like taking a break from it and looking back and, mm. oh yeah this is what I did so my formal graduation was half a year after I finished my thesis and I really needed that time to cool down from it <laughs> so your science illustration business was that kind of motivated by um having all that time during the pandemic to not be in the lab yeah I found that um so during the pandemic, one of my jobs for my boss, while I couldn't work in the lab, he asked me, like, why don't you make the graphical abstract for this um, review? And that went really well and also really fast. And we were both very happy with the results. But I thought, well, why don't I do more of this? Because this is so much fun. And indeed, I made a lot more art during lockdown. And yeah, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't go to the gym. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time developing myself. So it's kind of like, a good thing coming out of the pandemic like everything has a good thing <laughs> hmm. that's and, true yeah it was actually my boss who asked me whether it would not be a good idea to leave the lab and become a full-time freelancer oh wow yeah i had um in january i did the kickstarter of enamel pins which was super successful and with that in the back of my mind i went into a meeting with my boss like a career progress meeting you need to have that once a year and for my like um, review piece, I needed to write something myself. I've written that actually my ambition was to one day become a freelance um, science illustrator, just to focus on art. And my boss just asked me, well, when are you going to do this? Because this, this is your ambition. You need to do this. Mm-hmm. And he surprised me with that. But he was yeah. also right. Like, if this is something you want, then go do it. <laughs> yeah. So he's been super supportive in like um, giving me some room to think about this and also just like going for it, starting to set up and um, like finishing things in the lab and making sure that I hand things over properly to the new person or like That's actually amazing. person who's been there forever, but has always been part of this project. No, it makes sure that she knows where all my strains are, what all my methods are so that nothing is lost when I leave. 
That's amazing. That is so great that your boss encouraged you and kind of has been supporting you through this. And so that's going to be in June, I guess, is when you're finished up in the lab. Halfway June is our current leaving date. Uh, we recently oh. like took care of the paperwork, so, and that's so strange. It's so strange to like not mm-hmm. have a contract end, but to actually like make a letter of like I am leaving you. That's <laughs> like, mm-hmm. also a moment where you look at yourself and think, "Am I making the biggest mistake ever?" But I think it's going to be great. But I think no, it's yeah, awesome. my boss is like amazing in that, and he's also very straightforward in the sense academia is difficult uh, there's a lot mm-hmm. more phd students and postdocs than that there are positions as um pis so there's a lot of people who leave like academia in universities to do something else and if you're not really like looking forward to a position as a pi then it's probably better for you if you're honest with yourself and say well i want to do this other thing with my life Yeah. Yeah. I think so often it's assumed that that's what we would do with ourselves after we finish a PhD, but it's, I mean, there are so many other things out there that we can do with a PhD. And so I think that's really neat. I mean, I think we also forget it's because it's like this role model thing. Everyone we meet Mm. during a PhD are people who did the PhD and then continue in academia. And we don't often come in contact with people who did something else. That's so true. Yep. And then, I mean, for me personally, I was so focused on doing my PhD that I didn't even look into what other things were available at first. And it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. But it's like, I just wanted to get my research done. And I loved being in the lab. (laughs) And I was just like consumed with it. And so it's like, and then yeah, your role models are all the people that are in the university with you and teaching and stuff and, and your, um, your advisor. And so it's kind of like, why would you not do that? But the truth is there are so many other things that you can do and, and it's not like a bad thing. (laughs) It's like a very good thing that we can do whatever we want, you know? Absolutely. And now with art, I'm noticing how much demand there really is for it. Um, Especially now that I also started to do some animations. It's really fun to see how many people, scientists, look at a simple animation and think, actually, I want this for my research because it's so explanatory. And it really is. Like they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, a moving picture makes things so much more easy to understand, especially with microbiology that can be difficult to explain anyway. Oh, yeah. That's really good. Um, So... Talking about that, then what would you say is your favorite, if you can pick one or a few favorite microbiology concepts to illustrate that are kind of difficult for people to explain in words? Is there um, anything you think that art can really help people better understand that with? I think um, genetics. Like We can talk about genetics and genes all we want, but um, there are really nice explanatory images of um, phylogenetic trees which show either like a shape of a species and then you can immediately see same with the dolphin and fish example this thing here does not belong here but he is in this line and that's our entire point (laughs) Mm. and um what i like to illustrate and show but that's also just for me 
is I like really being really graphic and really bold with things. So while normally bacterial shapes are actually pretty simple, like just round things, it's cool if you make this shape super like bold, bright red, weird colors. I recently made a Helicobacter pylori illustration, which was like a lot of acid inspiration. And I kind of enjoy making this simple shape really exciting. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, also antibiotic production and resistance is something I want to explore mm. with like um, how something is made and that fights off the other thing. But it's always a question of like, how do you show it in a way that's actually understandable? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes we go beyond ourselves and make an illustration more confusing <laughs> than it should be. Well, I think that's really neat. And I like that you've kind of chosen to go with big, bold shapes and colors and stuff. Um, so I think that's a neat way to depict bacteria in the microbial world because people think of it as very simple. But it's like if you really think about it, there's a lot going on in there. And probably having those big, bold colors and shapes helps people kind of almost grasp the idea that there's a whole world and that it's doing lots of things that we're not thinking about. Yeah, it's also funny with like illustration styles. Um, my friends, um, like Noemi and Frank and Eliza Wilson, they're also uh, science illustrators. They also really like to give them like eyes and personalities because mm-hmm. it's a bit of like a two thing in science. Because on one hand, when you're a microbiologist, people constantly tell you, no, you cannot say this bacteria is happy. No, you cannot say this bacteria is angry because they don't have emotions. They're just bacteria. And it's also really nice to sometimes say, okay, and now we have a drawing and this guy is super angry and this guy is super happy. And that's also a fun way to explain something. It's, yeah, Yeah. every approach I think works really well. I just, it never worked Mm. well for me. Yeah, but, um, I think that's that's so true. I definitely, I, I had people say, do not anthropomorphize the microbes and do not talk about what, how they're like humans in any way because they don't think. And it's like, well, I feel like it does help us understand it though, <laughs> like what they're doing. It's a bit of two places. I think in science communication, it really helps But then when you're writing a scientific article, which of course we're doing like all the time in science, it's really something I need to put aside and just think, okay, they're not angry. There's no emotion. Mm. There's a response and a reaction. But yeah, it's sometimes also just fun to say they are really angry right now and now they make (laughs) (laughs) antibiotics. Yep. Yeah, that's true. You really have to balance those two ideas Mm -hmm. in your mind. Um, So one of the... um, things that you created that I really liked was a bacteria tote bag. And um, on the bag, it says this bag contains 26.4 times 10 to the 14 bacteria. So, and you said that was kind of like a rough calculation of how many could fit inside of the bag. Yes. Um, (laughs) I love that. So how did you come up with this idea and what motivated you to create it? I like having actual stuff with microorganisms on it because there's so much like bags that have plants bags that have like animals cutesy animals like i like to have cool stuff that i like to wear with microorganisms that's also not too jokey because i like i just like pretty things (laughs) i'm very Mm -hmm. superficial i just like pretty things (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
And um, one of my friends, she is a, a fashion illustrator and she makes tote bags with like this bag contains and then she has lipstick on it and the things that are in the bag. And I always like to look at that. <laughs> I said, I want that with bacteria. And then this bag I contains this massive amount of bacteria. That was um, really, I have to say, a poor calculation. I had like a receipt and just took the bag and Googled something like how many bacteria would fit into a square inch. And it was like an article from super long ago. It's like, good enough for me. I'll extrapolate it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I love mean, that. That's so I, cool that you took a concept that was used for things like what's in this purse. And then you <laughs> did that with microbes. That's so clever. It's it's fun. It's I'm also very happy with how it worked out. Sometimes with these concepts, you have an idea and then you do it and you realize, actually, <laughs> it's always great when it works out. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, I quite like to look at like uh, fashion illustration and fashion design for how they do things to so see if I can steal it. Because they're always so forward with how concepts just work so well and which color combinations go well. Yeah, that's really good. So um, another thing that you worked on, we actually have worked together and it was a super fun process. Um, So I created the Joyful Winograsky column guide and while I was working on it, I wanted to, I had decided that I wanted to have a color guide to show the different colors and layers that are in a Winogradsky column. While I was in the process of creating it, I realized I don't think I can create this color guide on my own. <laughs> and I thought this is going to be really difficult. I considered hand drawing it and making it in PowerPoint or trying to get Illustrator to work again. And I just... <laughs> came across your um, illustration that you did of Winogradsky column. I think I saw it on Instagram first and I immediately messaged you and was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I love this so much. I actually like sent you a voice message and, yeah. <laughs> and I was just like in love with it. And I just was like, would you want to work with me? And um, I'm also happy that you did. So tell us a little bit about that process of how you created the color guide. It was so fun to work on because like um, I actually tagged you in a post, I think, because one of my friends told me about your blog and I was so excited about all your photos. Um, It was really fun to hear that we both kind of had like an, oh, my God, this person is so cool moment. So you you had a very clear concept and that made it like super easy to work with you. And you actually had a list of exactly which colors are supposed to be where and which type of bacteria. Um, So that made it easy for me to also actually look for the exact bacteria that are supposed to be there because they all have different shapes. Again, I come back through shapes. I'm kind of obsessed and I'm okay with this. Um, And one of the things I really like to do is just to make a seamless pattern for it because illustration is a weird thing. There's so many ways to approach it because when I make a fun illustration for myself, I like to just draw everything by hand because that's a really relaxing process. But for example, with you, you probably like have more ideas than just a simple illustration. So I like to approach it in a way that it's, things can be used more. So um, I remember your excitement when I showed you like the seamless patterns. So it's mm-hmm. kind of simple for me because then you draw, instead of drawing 200 bacteria, I draw 20, make it a seamless pattern and then make it big. <laughs> So you can say, well, I want this pattern here. I want this this big. And you can change everything 
And instead of having six layers, you can say, well, remove this one. This is an example for a column that just has four. And that's fine because it's your column and your column is perfect. <laughs> so yeah, that was a lot of fun to make. Um, I really like working with, for example, you, you have this amazing idea of this column and like a really fun guide. And I think that's for me the best part of science, hearing about all these great ideas and examples of other people's science. And every time I hear things like this, I get so excited. I'm also working with someone on a grant proposal and that's like such a fun grant proposal. And like mm -hmm. when she gets that, I, she's probably super excited to share it with everyone. But it's really nice to hear about these new concepts that I wouldn't have thought of on my own. Oh, that's so neat. That's so fun. And you get to actually bring these ideas to life because it's for people like me who can't, I mean, are just not as talented and gifted at doing art. It's like, oh, I can explain this to somebody. And also you have a really, um, like you're good at taking the idea and then like expanding that where I didn't have to tell you exactly what to do, but then you just kind of were like, okay, so I have an idea of what you want, but then I'm going to take this and run with it. And I felt like I could really trust you, which was really awesome. And um, so that's really nice that it's like you can give this concept, but then you're able to take it and then add to it. And um, so I love that. And then you take that thing that's hard to actually explain and then bring it to life. So yeah. it was really neat. I'm so happy you like that. It's, I think, also one of the reasons for like illustrations that are microbiology style. You want to have an illustrator that knows microbiology. Mm, it, it's probably like, difficult to explain all these concepts and then to show, for example, reference photos. And this has this type of bacteria. It's, like, it's quite a thing. It's quite a big concept. <laughs> it is. And then you kind of know where to look for the information mm. so that if you're wondering how something should look or um, how to keep it scientifically accurate, you kind of already have your hands on the resources or know where to yeah. look for them. So I think that's really a huge benefit of having a microbiologist actually be able to illustrate your concept for you. So I think that's really neat. And I'm excited to see where your business goes. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm just like <laughs> starting full time in June. I'm, I'm so happy that I already have a lot of things to do. Um, I love to work on it. And I already know, like in a year's time, I'll probably do something completely different than I'm imagining right now. That's just how <laughs> life goes. But that's fine. Well, we are going to definitely work on some things in the future together. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so what would you say that you've learned kind of overall? Because we talk about microbes in our daily lives on this podcast. Um, what would you say that you've learned that kind of applies to anybody about microbes from doing microbial art and then also being a scientist that kind of help you understand microbes around us? I think one of the things I like most about microbiology is diversity and sudden changes. Um, I remember at some point doing an experiment where I had a mutant and it should by all means not grow on a specific medium, yet there were tiny ones that popped up and grew anyway, like persister strains. And that diversity of like, there's always one of them that persists or changes or evolves. And this uniqueness in life is something that I find beauty. And I like to, yeah, people also have that wherever there's a situation where you say, by all means, no one should like 
do this. Someone does it and this madman just <laughs> thrives. Like when you look at people who live in the Arctic, people do it. Like, how do you even do this? And to an extremity, there is bacteria growing in ice somewhere or next to volcanoes. You're like, why are you even doing this? You're crazy. You by all means shouldn't. <laughs> why are you going to Mars? You should not be doing this. Yet there's crazy outliers. And yeah, I think I really love the crazy outliers. Hmm. Yeah. And to them, they're not crazy. (laughs) I'm not anthropomorphizing them. But at the same time, it's like, it's from our perspective that we call them crazy from like a human perspective. (laughs) Yeah, But But to them, it's their norm. In nature, for example, and indeed this environment where by all means nothing should grow, yet one of them does. That's the Mm -hmm. real winner there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So... I've been asking everybody this question, but um, what at-home microbiology activity can you tell everyone about so that we can go and experience the microbial world in a hands-on way? Yeah, so I have a funny little activity in mind. So I'm obsessed with shapes. I love shapes. Um, And shapes are also important for bacteria. For example, I talked about um, mycelial bacteria. They probably have a purpose we don't know why mycelial shapes are important but probably a reason but there's one shape which is incredibly important and that's the corkscrew shape of helicobacter pylori helicobacter is a bacteria that creates stomach ulcers and by this corkscrew shape it's like corkscrews (laughs) it's like screws its way into stomach lining and sits stuck Mm -hmm. there so this shape is super important for how it causes disease but it's also really difficult. And I'd like to invite you to explore how difficult shapes are with me by trying to make the shape. So some bacteria are shaped like a banana, like um, Calobacter crescentis and Vibrio cholera. And that's really easy to make by taking a thin sheet of paper, holding it on top of a thin sheet of paper, and then just making one bigger than the other. Like if you have two A4s on top of each other and you like make one smaller, you already have this dome shape. Like, we can do this. But if you wonder, like, how does a bacteria make a corkscrew shape? I'd indeed like to invite you to try and do that out of paper and wonder how does this organism with no brain make this shape? I love that. So everyone can kind of go out and look up the different types of shapes of bacteria or microbes out there and try to create them with um, cutting them out of paper or making shapes with paper and then just kind of like think about the idea of how crazy it is that they can actually make these shapes. I love that. I think that's really neat. Do you have any resources that you'd like to point people to that um, if someone wanted to go deeper on this topic that they could go and look at like books or websites or articles? Yes, I have um, one of my, like next to your blog, my other favorite blog is Small Things Considered. That's um, Mm. by ASM. I always look at pretty new hot topics in science, like recent papers and recent developments. And one of my favorite um, science and microbiology book, which you probably mentioned as well at some point, is We Contain Multitudes by Ed Young. Mm. It's like one of my favorite books. And if I'm allowed to do a cheeky little plug, um, (laughs) soon I'll have a webcomic called Discovery, which is sort of an Alice in Wonderland and Doctor Who adventure where two people travel through science history to 
find events that shaped our current landscape of science. Oh, that's neat. We'll definitely point people to that in the show notes and link to those, all of those things. Um, so that's really awesome. That'll be exciting to see you whenever your web comment comes out. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me on the Joyful Microbe. This was really, really fun getting to talk to you about all the stuff that you've done with uh, microbiology and with art. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. It's really nice to be here. And yeah, if people make um, fun, crafty bacteria, please let me know. And I'll be sharing mine on Instagram and Twitter too. Yeah, I love that. So go ahead and tell everyone where they can find you and follow and connect with you. And if someone wanted to buy some of your microbial artwork or if they'd like to actually work with you on a project, tell them where they can find you. You can find me via my website. That's lisavanderaart.com, which probably will be linked below. (laughs) And I'm on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, But the main, like... You find everything on my website, also my contact details. And I'm happy to work with scientists and science communicators. Perfect. This was awesome. Thank you so much, Lisa. And um, we'll definitely link to everything. And this was so much fun getting to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Joyful Microbe Podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to help others who love microbes to find the podcast, then please leave a rating and review for the show. And tell a friend. To learn more about the Joyful Microbe, head on over to joyfulmicrobe.com where you will find the show notes and all the links and resources mentioned. And don't forget, you can check out the Joyful Winogradsky column guide that Lisa designed the art for and get your own at joyfulmicrobe.com slash column. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again, microbe friends. Talk to you next time.